Hello, welcome back to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby, and I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast today Maria de Grassa Cavallo. Signora Cavallo is currently a member of the European Parliament, where she was recently identified by VoteWatch EU as one of the most influential MEPs in the field of innovation. But that is not her only rodeo. She has had a varied career as Minister for Science in a Portuguese government, as Principal Science Advisor to José Manuel Barroso when he was President of the European Commission. She was an architect of not just one but two European science advice mechanisms, and she has a distinguished scientific career herself as a mechanical engineer with a particular interest in energy and climate change. In other words, she's been involved in the business of science for policy in almost every possible way. Senora Cavallo, uh, you are, as listeners might imagine, uh, an extremely busy person, and I'm very grateful to you for taking the time to talk to me. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for uh, the invitation for this podcast and thank you for your kind words of introduction. <laughs> did I get them all right? Yes, you did. Actually, actually, uh, I was now uh, not on innovation, elect by the, uh, the vote watch, but digital. Ah, oh, digital. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, I was in, in my previous in my previous mandate. I was on research and innovation. This time was on digital. Okay. So what are you working on in the digital sphere? Um, I'm focused focus mainly on the skills, the, the, the need for more research, for more to have trained people on artificial intelligence in digital, also looking at the, the fact that we don't have enough women in these areas. Uh, I've been through my life doing a lot of campaign to have uh, more women in science and engineer, and that has been a tremendous evolution, both in Europe and in Portugal, but not in digital itself. In digital, the, the figures shows that we are still uh, quite behind. We have uh, about only 20% of people working in digital are women, and this is very, very low. It's much lower than any other fields of science, of STEM, on, on the others, engineering. Uh, digital is worse. Women are less represented. For example, on cyber, is around 10%, 12% that we have women. And these are areas of the future, areas where we will have... Uh, better salaries, so we need to catch up and to, to reduce the gap between men and women in these areas. So I have been a rapporteur of several uh, opinions and several reports in this area, also on the ethics framework for artificial intelligence and digital. So I have been quite involved on the areas of digital and uh, I was quite pleased and surprised that they, they have recognized my effort. <laughs> That's interesting. So digital is lagging behind even other traditionally problem areas, like you said, like science and maths. Yes, yes, yes. Why do you think that is? I think that is is a question of perception. It's very important, especially for young girls. For example, in Portugal, we have done a a big campaign for many years that we have, we are doing this campaign uh, since I was minister and even before with the minister, Marianne Gago, uh, to to bring the attention of very young girls to science, Uh, small kids, uh, um, 
five, six, seven years and to to uh, to have museums for young children that talks about science. And it's very important that they start liking the scientific subject and uh, being attracted. And uh, we have not done the same effort on digital. Uh, young girls see uh, uh, the the digital. For them, the 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 nerd is a young boy uh, playing games in the uh, digital games, mm. and rarely is, is a girl. So we have a problem of perception here. They are very good users. They use, but they don't want to to go deeper than that. Uh, and uh, we have even uh, the numbers are going down compared with the 80s uh, all over the world. We had already in the past more women on digital than we have now. So that is the problem. We are not increasing. We are not succeeding to to lower the gaps. We need to do something about. It. Yeah. Okay. Well, good luck. It's uh, it's clearly an important issue. So let's talk science advice, because you have a, a very interesting story, I think, in the European field. Before you were an MEP, you were a science advisor to President Barroso when he was president of the European Commission mm-hmm. from 2006. What were things like in Brussels when you first arrived here? What was the state of science advice, the culture of science advice that you inherited? There is a tradition uh, of scientific advice um, in the European Commission. But at that time was done in a different way of today. Um, it was mainly uh, based on um, groups of experts um, for each DG, each uh, commissioner would have their experts to advise them. Uh, so always uh, science, evidence and uh, Evidence-based has been a principle of uh, the Commission, but is mainly based on committees of experts and also the uh, Joint Research Centre uh, has played the, uh, along the, the, the last years uh, a big role of providing reports and science advice to the different uh, DGs and the, uh, the different sectors of the Commission. Uh, President Delors has created a, a small unit um, to advise him. Uh, and this was Cellule de Prospective, the, uh, that after became uh, the BEPA, that was exactly where I was. So uh, I was principal advisor of President Barroso, including BEPA. And there uh, we had a group of experts that would advise directly the, the president. BEPA is the Bureau of European Policy Advisors. European Policy Advisors, yes. Um, that has changed the names, but the function has been mainly to advise the president of the commission. Uh, so I would say uh, that uh, President Bahol started uh, feeling that uh, the fact that we had a lot of science advice, but in a fragmented way, we would need to have something that would give more visibility and unification to the science advice. And uh, he decided to go a step further and on top, keeping everything that exists, but going a bit further and to create a model more uh, Anglo-Saxonic, 
uh, to have a principal uh, a chief scientific advisor. At the time, he, he, he uh, compared the different uh, uh, models uh, and there are pros and cons in the different models. For example, there are uh, there was a possibility to have not only one person, but to have a small group of chief scientific advisors, but he uh, chose the model of one chief scientific advisor. The big advantage of have one chief scientific advisor is the visibility, especially if it's someone quite outspoken and uh, um, that uh, communicates well. Um, there is uh, an added value um, of uh, communication and dissemination of the, the science advice process. So in a certain way, uh, he decided to, to, to go that step and was for the first time the, the European Commission had the, a chief scientific advisor, that was Anne Glover, um, that was backed by the PEP itself and also by the GRC and also by the other committees that exist. So she, she could request the, the, the support of all the committees that exist and continue to exist inside the European uh, the European Commission. Um, so that was quite historic, and uh, uh, I think uh, President Perros is someone that understands very well the importance of science and the importance of having uh, policies that are based on science that already exist in the Commission, but he wanted to give it more visibility, we want to give it uh, uh, more dissemination in this way that uh, things are done in Europe. Um, as you know, uh, President Juncker uh, decide not to continue with this model, and at the time he asked the uh, Commission Weathers uh, to study other models that could uh, that could be set up. And at the time I was uh, uh, advisor, senior advisor of uh, Commission Weathers, and I helped him to to prepare a report that we did for President Juncker where we compare the different models that exist in the world. And it's mainly, uh, I would say, mainly three models. One that is a chief scientific advisor. The second is a, a group of uh, advisors or chief advisors. And the third, uh, uh, based on academies or institutions that advise the government. Or some countries that have a mixture of the three or two of these uh, models, but they the category are mainly these three categories. So in certain way, uh, we proposed uh, also a, a mixed model that uh, uh, would combine uh, a group of chief scientific advisors, supported by a unit, uh, and together with the academies, European academies. So in certain way, an hybrid model from the ones that uh, uh, exist and we could see that exists in the world. And this model was quite uh, uh, well accepted by the outside scientific world and also by President Juncker. So 
there was the setup of the science advice mechanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a complex <laughs> system, but uh, uh, is probably the best system that you can because uh, Europe is complex, but it, it works well. So we have a, a group of chief scientific advisors, seven chief scientific advisors, um, that are supported by a, a unit that now this unit is um, in DG Research and Innovation and that it has also scientific support of the top European academies uh, of science, of engineer, of medicine, and uh, that give the scientific basis also to this chief scientific advisor. So it's this mechanism that produces opinions on the complex issues that are requested uh, by the president, by the commissioners, or the, the mechanism itself can have the initiative to propose a topic and to elaborate an opinion on that topic. Yeah, it's an interesting setup, as you say. I just want to take one step back to ask you about something you mentioned. I think it's fair to say in 2014, when President Juncker abolished the post of chief scientific advisor, which was Anne Glover, as he said, there was a fair bit of controversy about that in the scientific community. And at the time, it was uh, a lot of the debate was around whether this was a response to advice that Professor Glover had given on, uh, particularly on GMOs at the time. Mm. And there was a lot of uh, pushback on that from outside the commission, from various interest groups. And so there was a, a view that perhaps changing your system was a response to that. Now, you were on the inside when it all happened. Is there any truth to that? Um, I think that uh, new college, new president, they uh, they always want to do their uh, to revisit things and to, to see what are the best models. And uh, probably President uh, uh, Juncker thought that uh, to have everything concentrate in one single person wouldn't be the optimal solution. So he asked Commissioner uh, Weathers to see other models that will be more distributed and more adequate to the... Uh, to the European model uh, that has different uh, member states, different cultures. Um, And he was happy with this solution that has, instead of one chief scientific advisor, seven, involves uh, at least five European academies. So in certain way, he felt more comfortable with a model that involves more uh, persons, more institutions. Um, I, I think I know. I remember very well the the, the polemic that it was. But I think that is a, a, the natural way uh, to to make things different when a president starts and to to. Um, in that particular case, he felt more comfortable with something that would have more people involved than just one chief scientific advisor. Because that model has uh, advantage and disadvantage. The advantage is, uh, as I said, uh, a great visibility if the person is, is someone that communicates well. and uh, But it can create disadvantage. So is. It's more difficult sometimes to get consensus if it's concentrated in one person. 
Um, if you have uh, different academies that have representatives of different member states, and um, of course the scientific uh, the scientific evidence um, is scientific evidence, but sometimes there are uncertainties. There are uh, different ways to look at things, and uh, it tends up that for the European. Uh, conditions and for the European complexity, this model probably works better. And uh, it has proved so because uh, uh, things that have been going well, very well since this model is uh, uh, is on place. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting setup as you describe it. So you've got the seven chief advisors on the one hand instead of one, yeah. and they advise the whole college of commissioners rather than just the president. So that's also a significant change. Yeah, yeah. But it's also then a hybrid model, because on the other hand, as you mentioned, you've got a hundred or so European academies in Sapea. And the division of labour between those two I find very interesting. So one half collects and reviews the evidence and uh, and synthesises it. That's the academies. Yeah. And then the result is handed over to the advisors and then they are the ones who make any kind of uh, concrete policy recommendations. Yes. So is that that kind of um, firewall between the people who present the evidence and the people who make the recommendations, was that a deliberate plan from the start, like a feature, or did it come about more by... No, that was something that took a lot of discussion until the final decision because it was not very clear and very easy to do the distinguish the distinguish between the uh, when the work of the academies would stop and would start the the work of the chief scientific advisors and i remember we were discussing so what the opinion done by the the report done by the academies by sapaya uh, can it have conclusions? Can it have options? Can it have recommendations? And there was a lot of discussions between the the chief scientific advisors and the representatives of SAPAES until they they arrived to this consensus. So one that SAPAE does the scientific evidence and does uh, conclusions in terms of scientific evidence. From there, there are the the, the chief scientific advisors uh, elaborate policy recommendations. So one is scientific state of the art, scientific evidence, conclusions of the scientific evidence. Uh, and the others do translate that, are certain way translators of the scientific evidence already in some policy uh, scenarios. Because the final policy option is done by the college. These ones have the, the duty to take taken the evidence by Sapaya, taken the policy recommendations or the policy scenarios done by the chief scientific advisors and more constraints like the ethics values, like budgetary constraints, putting all that together, they do the final decision, they do the policy. But it's an evidence-based policy based on all these elements. So uh, that was one of the most difficult uh, 
uh, issues to, to, to discuss and to design was exactly the frontier between SAPEA and the chief scientific advisors. But it works now, and I think that is well designed like it is. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, uh, I think it's one of the great strengths of the model and yeah. one of its most uh, subtle features, if you like, that the people who are gathering the evidence are not the ones whose job it is to give the policy recommendations. And vice versa, that the advisors who are giving the recommendations are not also responsible for people, coming up with exactly. the evidence yes. the advice is based on. Yes. It gives each half a bit more uh, credibility. Yeah, But certainly the price you pay is a bit more complexity because it's quite an intricate setup and and for me yes now it's my job to explain to people how it all works well you've certainly uh, bequeathed me a few headaches and of course as you've also mentioned these still aren't the only elements in the eu's um the trendy phrase is the, the science advice ecosystem yes because you've also got the joint research center the jrc which actually predates all of this that we've been talking about um, and you also have the group on ethics in science and new technologies. There's a lot going on here. Do you think this is another strength of the system? Yes. How does it... uh, let me, the GRC. Yes. The GRC, I, I would say mainly two differences when you compare the GRC with the science advice mechanism. First, the, the GRC is mainly a, a body that works for the DGs itself, not directly to the president or to the college. Probably is not the most important uh, topic, but, but it's important to say that. Second, uh, they are part, like SAPAIA, they, they can provide, and they do many times, uh, provide science evidence also to, to feed in the seven chief scientific advisors. They also received a lot of information from GRC, and that is important. The main difference between GRC and this mechanism is that GRC itself is not a completely independent mechanism. GRC is a DG and there's nothing wrong to be a DG, but it's a DG. It has a whole hierarchy, uh, director general, directors, head of units. They are uh, the persons producing the, the reports are officials. Uh, um, that has the independence and the ethics of an official, and we trust them. But they are not a body independent of the commission. And in very complex issues, these make, create this difference may be important yeah this question of independence and how how about the now the the ethics yes. the 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 ethics the objective and the mission of the ethics is completely different and complementary to the uh, scientific ecosystem and the, the european group of ethics uh, in the beginning was mainly devoted to biology, bioethics, but as 
with the uh, time with time has evolved and is now looking in many areas ICT artificial intelligence even energy so a lot of uh, um, decisions on agriculture so a lot of decisions have ethics uh, ethical implications so they look at the ethical implication um, uh, implications of the decisions that will be taken by the European Commission and this is what I said is the science base so the reports uh, of Sapaya and chief scientific advisors together with the reports from the uh, European Group of Ethics that the college uh, makes the final decision together with other constraints that they will have administrative budgetary constraints and so it's the mixture of this that uh, an informed decision is taken by the college. Yeah and I can see the logic of separating the ethical elements to a different uh, group. Yes, yes, yes. And the, the, the curricula of the group of ethics is completely different from the uh, chief scientific advisors. Uh, of course, they are 15. Uh, some, they, they usually have two or three scientists that you can have, say that has a similar CV of the chief scientific advisors. But after you have people from philosophy in ethics itself, theologists, and lawyers, and so that look f- to the subjects from uh, more ethical and uh, from the ethical point of view. So you have a lot of philosophers in that in that group that uh, with the speciality of ethics. Yeah, thanks. That's that's very clear. So now I want to ask a question that politicians hate to answer, but. <laughs> <laughs> This mechanism that you helped to design has been running for, what, about seven years now? Yes, yes. Yeah. So what would you do differently? What has not worked out the way you hoped? I think doesn't have enough visibility. Right. Uh, and it, for example, when was only one chief scientific advisor and Glover had more visibility than the seven. And this... This is always the case. When we compare the different models, we saw that uh, um, uh, countries like Australia or New Zealand, um, that you have a chief scientific advisor, one person, this gives more visibility to the system than when you dilute it in five or seven chief scientific advisors. Mm. Um, And it's a pity because it works very well. Uh, but the visibility is less than when you have one person. Yeah. Uh, I think that they need to do more work to, 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 get, uh, to get more visible, to disseminate more. In the beginning, they were a bit cautious, of course. They want to, to, to play it safe, to get results, but now they have sufficient number of results and good results, well-received well uh, uh, opinions. And this is also true f- for Sapaya. There is not a lot of people, mainly in the, uh, for example, in the parliament that is in the Brussels Beltway, never mind the member states. The member states, I don't think that m- even know that the system exists. But even in Brussels, in the, I suppose, in the parliament, not a lot of MEPs know about the system. 
Well, <laughs> you and I are talking. The work starts here. Yeah, yeah, but I'm a special case probably on that. <laughs> but yeah. the 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 MEPs that knew more about the system and they were big defenders on the system were the British, and they left. <laughs> <laughs> so now they have to get some uh, uh, key MEPs to to defend the system and to speak out for the system. But. I'm talking about the parliament, but it's not only the parliament, all the stakeholders, all the, uh, the lobbyists, the think tanks. Uh, I don't think that the system has enough visibility. They need to work more on that part. Yeah. On the dissemination. Yeah. So, since you've mentioned parliament, and it would be remiss of me not to ask you about this too, while I have you. Yeah. Of course, parliamentarians, like commissioners, also have to make policy decisions, which are often uh, increasingly complex and technical where scientific input is needed. What kinds of channels are available to MEPs to get that kind of advice? And uh, does it do the job? We we have the EPRS, the uh, system in the... In the parliament that produces uh, uh, opinions, a bit like the SAM, they don't have independent uh, chief scientific advisor, but they have a, a quite w- good, uh, well classi- uh, qualified uh, staff to produce these opinions. And uh, they have a policy department. There they are more target on the reports that we are doing in the committees. And they developed for each, uh, I won't say all of them, but to, to the main reports that we need to prepare, they elaborate uh, reports with the science evidence that are quite useful. Um, so, but there are departments inside the, the parliament. And do you find that MEPs really use them? I mean, my experience of parliament is that the main source of policy advice, science and otherwise, comes from the political side? Uh, from the political advisors, you mean? Uh, from the advisors, yeah, or from the groups or from national parties? Uh, yes, but I think more and more people use. I'm not sure if the MEPs themselves, but the assistants, the, the, the group advisors, the, the secretariat of the committees, they... They, they really use these reports. I have now a report on exactly to understand and to measures for to have more women in digital and AI. And we, uh, the parliament has uh, prepared a report with uh, outside experts with a lot of data it has been very, very useful. And I read it very careful, not only the report, line, but also the reference of the report. Um, so I, I think that more and more people are using this report because uh, subjects that arrive to us are more and more complex. It's very rare that we have a, a subject that doesn't require uh, knowledge from, from science data, science uh, evidence. is uh, very rare. So it's... Is it, so my, my main topics from climate change to decisions on energy, hydrogen, um, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, uh, 5G, they, they are all quite co- 
complex from from the scientific point of view. So you need to read a lot and you need to have a lot of advice and a lot of data and data that you can trust uh, to decide on these subjects. Good. So that's one side of the question, what kind of evidence comes in. And then the other side of the of the question is, yeah. what kind of evidence remains when the policy is made? So I ask, because I used to work for an MEP, one of the British MEPs, uh, whose loss we were just bemoaning. And he was on the Fisheries Committee, where a lot of the work is very heavily dependent on science. And he used to say that you could watch the whole legislative process, starting with the Commission proposal and finishing with the final regulations. And it was a long process of the scientific evidence gradually being weakened and, and watered down. So you would start with the scientists advising the commissioners on whatever it was, maintaining healthy fish stocks, for instance. And then the commission would say, okay, that's great, but we have to give the politicians something they can accept. So they would soften it a bit. And then it would go to parliament and council and they would negotiate and compromise and it would get softened again, not to mention conciliation and what happens there. And by the time it came out of the other end, the original science wasn't really recognisable anymore. Now, I know that's quite a cynical view. Is there any truth to it? I think things are changing because of the the same reasons. Things are more and more complex and they really need to be based on science and the ultimate is the pandemic that we are uh, gone through that you really need uh, to to be guided in any decision you need to have evidence even evidence that for uh, that still do not exist but you really need you, you, now you understand that you need to be guided by science and the scientists need to, to, to tell you what are the best solutions, even if you don't go exactly the way they are, they are telling you because there are constraints, like economic constraints, but at least you, know what are, you need to know what are the consequences of your decisions. Uh, so more and more the, the politicians are understanding that uh, they cannot disregard science. I suppose it's going to be more and more after this uh, this uh, dramatic experience of the COVID-19 that we really understood that we need to take very serious all the evidence and all the scientific evidence, yeah. Yeah, well, let's hope so. A silver lining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we finish, I'm interested in your personal view on this. Most MEPs are generalists, of course. They don't have a scientific background, but you do. Do you feel like that gives you any kind of advantage in your work in Parliament? I think so. Not only because you understand certain subjects better than the others. I wouldn't say that that is the most, uh, the biggest advantage because... I'm researching in one subject and not in other, so uh, that is not the main the main advantage. The main advantage is the scientific mind that gives you some scientific methodology of uh, decision making, uh, some. Pre- like the researchers prepare me to to make decisions in research, so I applied the same methods 
when I was in government, when I was doing policy advisor to President Barroso or Commissioner Moedas and, and in, the, in the parliament itself. So the scientific method and the scientific way to decide Uh, to do a literature review, uh, to design the different options, to study the advantage and disadvantage of each of the scenarios and to conclude. I use this methodology like I use in my research to any decision that I have to take in my professional life and even in my private life. So it, it, this is the big advantage, is the way you are uh, used to solve problems in a scientific manner. Yeah, well said. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. I've learned loads. I hope you found it interesting too. Okay, thank you very much. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, And you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.